And if enough people stand up, empower themselves with knowledge, begin to take action, we can create a ripple effect. Hello, and welcome to the Arts of Language podcast with Andrew Poudoua, founder of the Institute for Excellence in Writing, or as many like to say, IEW. My name is Julie Walker, and I'm honored to serve Andrew and IEW as the Chief Marketing Officer. Our goal is to equip teachers and teaching parents with methods and materials which will aid them in training their students to become confident and competent communicators and thinkers. So, Andrew, I've been thinking, we haven't had a guest on our podcast for like a month or so. Yeah, it's been a while. Yeah, it's been a while. So I thought, you know, I would just ask you, if you had a magic wand, which guest would you like for us to have on our podcast? Well, you already know the answer to that. I do. Because we have managed to... Uh, get a guest mm-hmm. that was just tremendously inspiring the first time I heard her. Yes. And then I said, you got to listen to this. Yes. And so just this morning, I listened to an amazing podcast where Candace Owen interviewed our guest and said, oh, I'm so glad we get to have her on our podcast today. Yes. And, um, you know, it's a little off our, our norm mm-hmm. to have, number one, Famous authors, yes, and, and you know <laughs> academics of, of mm-hmm. her caliber, caliber. Mm-hmm. But um, also, I think uh, she doesn't necessarily know what to expect from us. That's true. So let's introduce <laughs> Dr. Carol Swain. Dr. Carol Swain, welcome to our podcast. We're so excited to have you. I'm so delighted uh, to be with you uh, today. And um, you might not have known this until today. And I don't know that our listeners, any of them, would know this, but you and I almost accidentally are in the same movie, which is going Mm. to be released very shortly, entitled Schoolhouse Rocked. I'm excited about uh, the release of that film because it will be a great resource for parents and teachers as well as grandparents uh, because it focuses on the homeschool world. And I think there's more interest today in America than ever before about homeschooling. And so I think after they watch that film, people will really understand that it is doable, that it's happening all around them, and that they too can be a part of it. Right, exactly. And I was also thinking as you were talking about that, this idea of parent-directed education, you know, if they can't actually physically homeschool, at least they can take more responsibility for their children's education. And that's kind of what we're talking about here today. I had a friend who said, you know, every parent homeschools, it's just that some do it full time. Uh, And so one of the things we have discovered over the past few years is that there's just an increasing number of parents who are interested, not just in maybe homeschooling completely, but supplementing what the schools offer with good, solid language arts instruction uh, that they can can do at home. And so I was so delighted. I was watching the 
pre-release version of the movie because uh, actually Garrett and Yvette Hampton, who made the movie, are living here in Tulsa, and we see them often, and we've been kind of hearing the progress, getting closer, getting closer, getting closer, and then he said, okay, you can watch this one, and so I was watching it. Of course, it's horrible to watch yourself in a movie, but when you came on, I said, I know that woman. That's Carol Swain. That is incredible that they got her uh, to add in uh, to this movie. So we will look forward to its full release in, I think, just a matter of of days or weeks at the most. So, so Andrew, I know that there are, and maybe I should address this to you, Dr. Swain, it is quite possible that there might be a handful of our listeners that don't actually know you or your story. Right. So, so can we start there? Yeah. Well, just to finish the official introduction, and then I'll ask her to tell a little more. Um, you are a little bit older than I am, and you were born in really uh, a difficult, difficult situation, a level, you, you, you grew up in a level of poverty that most people can't even imagine, um, I certainly can't. And yet you managed to get, you know, a GED. You worked several jobs. You went to Virginia Western Community College to get an associate degree. And then you went on to graduate magna cum laude with a bachelor's of arts in criminal justice from Roanoke College, which would be an achievement. But then you went on to get a master's degree in political science from Virginia Tech. And then you went on to get a PhD from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And I guess a PhD wasn't enough because you continued on to get a Master of Legal Studies from Yale Law School. That is a string of academic achievements that is mind-blowing for most of us. Uh, And you taught also at Princeton and Vanderbilt. And and then you, you retired from Vanderbilt to move on. So I'm just you know, I guess my questions are, how in the world did you manage to gain the uh, skills that you needed to be so very successful in the academic world, uh, given the, the difficult situation? And I know you, you had a, uh, your first child at a young age and were a single mom for a while. So give us, you know, a little bit of that backstory because it to me when I first heard it on the on the Candace Owen show, I thought this is the most inspiring woman I have ever listened to. Well my story is that I was born in nineteen fifty four in southwestern Virginia and nineteen fifty four was the year of the Brown versus Board of Education school desegregation case that resulted in the court declaring that public schools throughout America needed to be desegregated or integrated in all deliberate speed. And for me in Virginia, and Virginia was a state of massive resistance. It was the late 1960s before I went to an integrated school. I was born in rural poverty and rural poverty is very different from urban poverty. Uh, For the early part of my life, I lived in a two room shack. The uh, children Mm -hmm. slept on the kitchen floor Later, that shack was expanded uh, to four rooms, and that meant the girls had uh, their own bed and the boys had their own bed, but we did not have indoor plumbing. And so we had to uh, carry our water from a spring 
we did not uh, have an outhouse. And, you know, that's pretty poor because most people, even in the South, during the time when you did not have indoor plumbing, uh, they had an outhouse. And the poverty was a factor in my making a decision to get married at 16, had my first child at 17. And by the time I was 21, I had three small children. And people came into my life and encouraged me. And I often talk about the power of words, that the words that we give people can mm -hmm. change their lives. And one of the persons who affected my life was a medical doctor who told me that I was intelligent, I was attractive, that I could do more with my life. And at that time, I was very depressed. I was doing suicide gestures, taking bottles mm -hmm. of pills and um, making sure I got rescued. Um, mm -hmm. because I really didn't want to die. It was a cry for help. But mm -hmm. I was going through that, and the doctor's encouragement led me to get my high school equivalency, and I took a job outside the home. And while I was working in a nursing home, one of the African orderlies told me that I ought to go to college, that he went to college with a lot of people who were not as smart as I was, and that I should go. And that was the first time that I thought about college or the fact that you could go with a high school equivalency. And I guess for many community colleges, you don't even need a high school diploma that you can earn it maybe while you're there. Right, exactly. I've heard the term 18 and breathing is what's required in community <laughs> colleges. <laughs> well, but, you know, I had heard that you kind of weren't able to continue high school past ninth grade. Is that correct? I did not complete uh, the ninth grade. I completed the eighth grade and dropped out in the ninth grade. And I remember that the year that I dropped out, I had all Fs. And I was just so mm. depressed and there was so much wow. uh, going on in my family. There was no way that I could focus on school. And uh, there's another part of my life story that I have shared. I don't share it often. But when I was around 13, I filed a petition to be placed in a foster home, and uh, it went to court. The judge ruled that I could stay with my grandmother. That was not much of a solution, but I remember some years ago hearing about a boy in Florida that filed a petition to be placed in a foster home, and they were making it seem as if he was the first child to do that. Uh, I don't know if I was the first, but I know that I did it. Mm. Wow. I, I guess that probably caused you to develop a nascent interest in law, which, of course, you pursued seriously. That's so interesting that you were able to file that petition legally yourself. But I can tell you as a child, I got letters in the – I got one letter in the local newspaper concerning an issue – involving a lawyer that had the deed to my father's house. He was not returning it. And so I wrote the newspaper helpline, described the situation. And the next day, the lawyer called and said, come get your deed. Wow. Wow. Community college, uh, I wrote an opinion piece. And uh, the editor of the Richmond Times responded to it. And so they, they published it in the Richmond Times, which was the state newspaper, and uh, and then the editor wrote an editorial addressing some of the points in my op-ed. And so those were like early signs, I guess, of my personality and 
my talent, but I would say that I'm just a person that I guess I've always believed I could make things happen and that there was a correlation between hard work and results. Mm. You uh, went into criminal justice and then later political science and then later legal studies. All of those seem like fields that require a lot of writing. I'm assuming that somehow you did well writing papers and briefs and all the things that you needed to. Looking back, how would you say your writing and, by corollary, speaking skills were developed? Because very often you would think, well, you know, you didn't learn that in school, per se, um, given the harsh situation, given the dropping out at ninth grade, and yet you obviously did very well. And what we are, of course, very interested in here is cultivating communication skills. You exactly. Know, we, yep. we call ourselves, um, well, we say our little tagline, Institute for Excellence in Writing, listen, speak, read, write, think. And it seems that you got very good at all of those things. And the question is, how? I would say that it was a lot of hard work. I was always good at anything that was not uh, requiring a lot of quantitative skills. And so because I missed a lot of school, and I didn't mention that there was one year that I missed 80 of 180 school days, and that year I failed, as did all my siblings. You can do arithmetic and learn that, but when it comes to algebra and calculus and higher math, uh, it's very important, you know, to go step by step. And if you skip steps by missing school, you're very unlikely to do well. And so for me to uh, to do well in college, it took some remedial work in math. And I would say with English, I missed a lot of English when I was not in school. Uh, I took I believe I took remedial English. I'm not 100 percent sure. I know I did for math, but Writing is something you get better the more you do it. And so I've written uh, lots of papers. I have five degrees. And even as a professor, my writing you know, has improved just with practice. And I expect to keep improving as long as I'm alive. That is such a wonderful attitude. And I think all of us you know, in our 60s now have really that awareness mm-hmm. that education doesn't stop doesn't have to, and we can keep keep growing. I'm curious, along the line, I'm sure you had various uh, teachers and professors, some um, great, some okay, some maybe less than ideal. Do you recall any particular advice you got from some of your, your best or, or most appreciated instructors along the way? Well, I mean, I always knew I was smart. And I guess <laughs> I knew that in elementary school because I could miss days of school and still go in and make an A or a B. And at the community college in various places, I always got positive feedback for my work. And so I, I can't say that anyone ever treated me like I was handicapped or less able because of the color of my skin. I'm black and I came from poverty as we've been discussing. 
But my mentors, and many of them, most of them were white, many of them were men, they encouraged me, you know, to they 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 encouraged me to continue my education, but they also um, never treated me in a way that made me think I was lesser or that I was handicapped in any way because of the color of my skin. I went to school at a time when we did not have people saying that if you were black, you're a victim or that uh, the world was stacked against you in such a way that it didn't matter how hard you worked. And I had role models. I had many role models. They were not people that looked like me. They were people that were doing the things I wanted to do. And I can say that mm. I looked at other other people. I looked at how they dressed. I looked at how they spoke. Uh, I looked at what they did. And I sort of followed their example. That is such an excellent point. Uh, one of the things that kind of differentiates our approach to teaching writing than others that you may find in schools here or there is that we begin with this idea of imitation, that if you want to improve your writing skills, you need to be able to look at and try to imitate to some degree the structure, the style, the tone of writing that is better than what you can do. And yeah, that's kind of a it, it's kind of obvious to some people, but it's kind of harsh to other people um, because you know they want to be themselves, they want to be unique, they want to be creative. Only what we see is that that creativity and uniqueness can happen so much more effectively on a foundation of basic skills acquired through imitation. So. When you say, I looked at the way other people did things and spoke as a primary way to educate yourself, because, I mean, you went to all these schools and got all these degrees, but I'm sure you look back and you think, well, you know, as you said, the hard work, it's really everyone educates themselves. We just get help here and there. Well, I don't, I don't think that people have enough confidence, and when I when you talk about imitation, one of the problems that we have in colleges and I guess high schools is that students plagiarize, that they are copying mm -hmm. other people's words and ideas. And that's not what imitation means. I think that during the time when we uh, required people to read classic literature and read Shakespeare and uh, you know the great books of the Western world, uh, reading those books, that were uh, written by people, you know, who were great writers like Hemingway, that helped people like Toni Morrison, uh, you know, the Black Nobel Prize winner and other um, people that uh, we would consider literary giants, they learned by reading the works of other people. And so I don't know if I would call it imitating as much as I would tell people that they need to read w widely. And when they read things and um, they can watch how other people express themselves, like how they describe um, a setting or in a novel, you know, how they develop the characters. And so if you're reading for entertainment, but also watching how a writer, a good writer 
describes the setting, uh, then that is how you educate yourself. I think too many students are imitating to the point that they are plagiarizing. Yes, and we hear a lot of concern about that. And um, I think you've hit a very interesting point there because imitation is absorbing, you know, the wisdom, the vision, the understanding of those who've gone before and then applying that wisdom to your situation. Uh, plagiarism is almost the opposite. It's kind of like ignoring anything that doesn't get you the quick finish the paper and get a good grade. Of course, with technology now, it's harder and harder for students to get away with that type of plagiarism, but it, it still is, is obviously a serious concern. And also, I think that if people realize, you know, you do have your ideas, you are unique. And so part of the purpose of learning how to write and learning how to think is so that you can express yourself. And for myself, like I didn't grow up in a family where they had an expansive vocabulary. And so I spent years uh, buying vocabulary books and reading vocabulary. And I still do um, tests sometimes on vocabulary. I mean, even pronouncing words. I stumble over a lot of words, but I'm constantly, you know, trying to improve myself. I, I have to mention this, Andrew, and I told you that I was going to. One of your heroes in looking back at great speakers is Frederick Douglass. And you talk about how he learned to be a great speaker and how he grew up in poverty as well. And it kind of, Dr. Swain, have you ever been compared to the Frederick Douglass of your, where he was pretty much self-educated and became so influential because he was so articulate? No, I don't think so. But I can tell you that I struggled with shyness most of my life. And mm. I did not get over the shyness until I was in my 40s after I'd had a Christian conversion experience. And I felt mm. like when I had my spiritual experience, that God impressed on my mind that he had given me a message, a message bigger mm. than myself. And if I focused on delivering the message, of course, it took the attention off me. Uh, I was able to speak. Uh, I turned down opportunities, you know, to be on a program, Good Morning America, because I was afraid. And then after I had my Christian conversion experience, I have, you know, been out there in the world speaking and and sharing the ideas that I believe are important. Wow, I love that so much because there are lots of kids that I meet who are kind of shy. Mm -hmm. um, I've taught public speaking classes to high school students many times. I, I, I've met young people who say, oh, I could never do that. But you have unlocked the key, mm -hmm. which is as soon as you have something meaningful or important or God-given to share with the world, that eclipses the human weakness. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I, I find it very ironic that I have a business called Institute for Excellence in Writing and have been doing this for over two decades. But when I was a child, I didn't like writing at all. I only started to like writing when I knew something and I was a music teacher first, and so I started writing some articles about the importance of music education for children. And that's when it became interesting to me. Like, here's 
that are, here are ideas that are worth sharing, and I'll do whatever it takes to share them. So I love that. That is great advice for parents out there who have shy kids, I think. A lot of parents I meet at uh, you know homeschool conventions or through correspondence or online webinars and whatnot, they are concerned right now about their children, you know, middle school or usually high school kids, about what to do after high school. It seems as though, well, colleges and universities are horrifically expensive. Almost everyone has to borrow large amounts of money to go there unless they, you know, get very big scholarships, which some can do but not all. And then there's concern about the environment. Is it really an is it going to be academically and professionally good as opposed to, you know, is is that going to be second to uh, the agendas that exist on so many campuses? So if you had some words for parents, homeschooling or not, but looking at the college and university need or option or probable future, what would you say to them? Well, I mean, I think each family has to make their own decision based on that child. Like no one knows your child the way you do. And I think the young person, you know, who's approaching the age of 18 or maybe over 18, that they get a say. But parents, if they're paying for the education, if the grandparents are paying for it, they um, should exercise wisdom when it comes to are you going to finance an education at a school where you know your your relative is, or your child or grandchild is going to be harassed, they may lose their faith, uh, they would be a target? That's a parental decision. And I think that parents and grandparents, if they want to make a decision and say, I will pay for you to attend you know, University X, a lot of people say Hillsdale College. Well, Hillsdale can't take, take everyone. And there are a few other schools where you can go get an education and not be harassed if you don't share the values of the institution. And when I say values of the institution, I would say that all of the elite colleges and universities have uh, a set of core values that they're trying to turn out a particular kind of person. They want to turn out, you know, a Princeton man or woman or Harvard man or woman, Vanderbilt, various institutions. And so they have an idea of what you should look like and what you should think when you graduate. So the institution itself will be trying to instill its own values. Those values will be competing with whatever the young person has been taught at home. Yeah, so learning as much as you can about the schools you're interested in makes a lot of sense. And you're right, uh, Hillsdale can't take everyone. And in terms of the you know preparation that parents can give to students while they're still at home before they leave, you know, a lot of people bandy about the word critical thinking. Uh, everybody wants or everybody says they want critical thinking, but very few people seem to be able to define that well. I guess, you know, 
from your perspective, how would you define critical thinking and how would you suggest that parents and teachers actually cultivate that in an effective way? Well, I mean, critical thinking comes when you are able to look at divergent ideas and opinions and arrive at your own position. And what I find is that a lot of education today is indoctrination. It is telling young people and even old people what to think rather than how to think. And I believe that to develop strong thinking skills, young people have to be exposed uh, to a lot of literature. You And I don't mean being exposed to filth, but I think that the great books of the Western world are books that young people should read. And I think that they um, should be exposed to other worldviews so that when they leave home and they're hit for the first time with secular humanism uh, or other worldviews, such as the ones that are dominating campuses today that have to do with critical theory or critical race, critical critical queer theory, critical feminist theory, all of these theories, they need to know what they believe and why, so that when they encounter these uh, other philosophies, which they would certainly encounter, they can arrive at their own opinions. And so the solution is not sending them somewhere they can be indoctrinated, but exposing them to different viewpoints. Yeah, that's so good, so good. We're, we're getting toward the end of our time, but there is one more question I would love to ask, and uh, it wasn't on my list of questions, but you said something that made me think of this, that you had an article published, an op-ed, and it seems like that happened at a, a young age. And I, I have always tried to inspire parents, to inspire teenagers, and to inspire teenagers directly to get involved in whatever ways they can, um, which from an educational perspective, uh, I have always thought one of the best ways for a teenager to hone their listening, speaking, reading, and writing skills is to interact in a world with adults who have a, a purpose, a cause, a mission, a goal of some sort. So if you were to make suggestions, what what are some ways that you perceive young people can get involved in, you know, action that supports what they believe, what they would like to learn more about uh, in kind of, quote, the real world? What are some some venues you perceive as being particularly good opportunities? Well, when it comes to young people that are homeschooled, I find that they tend to be very much involved in the world. Some of them have small businesses, some of them are working, and they are getting exposure. I think that there are many opportunities people can volunteer if they're not working. That's one way to get exposed uh, to what is taking place in the world. And it, again, it very it should vary depending on the interests of the young person. But sheltering them and trying to shelter them, uh, it has its limitations. It can backfire. Yes, and I think that is one common misunderstanding about homeschooled kids that they, you know, don't have social outlets. They don't, uh, 
learn about things outside the home. Whereas I think the the current level of homeschooling, you almost find young people who are more informed about what's going on outside the home and certainly outside the 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 school. So uh, volunteers and internships, yeah. I would agree, so, and I would also say that uh, the young people that I've encountered that have been homeschooled, they excelled in college. And I always taught at elite institutions, at, at Princeton, at Vanderbilt. And so I was exposed to homeschooled young people there that really excelled. They were not at a disadvantage at all. Were you uh, at first kind of surprised about that when you started to meet homeschoolers and say, wow, these these kids kind of break my paradigm a little? Well, no, I don't think that I came with a particular uh, uh, stereotype about homeschool children, but the very fact that they were being admitted to those schools, they were not being admitted because they were homeschooled, they were being admitted because of their scores and their academic achievements. And so I shouldn't have been surprised that many of them would excel in the classroom. That should not have been a surprise because they had already been admitted to top institutions. Well, you left uh, Vanderbilt and retired, I I guess, about five years ago. Is that right? Uh, 2017, I took early retirement, and I have been working on a number of other things. I'm still writing books. I'm doing lots of public speaking. I have um, a I have a, I have an internet television show called Conversations with Dr. Carol Swain, and I am quite busy with two businesses <laughs> and a nonprofit. Yeah, when you when Andrew said retired, I'm thinking, Andrew, this woman is not retired. Well, you can retire from one thing. And it's then, true. <laughs> but I think you mentioned uh, that you went from Vanderbilt to Prager you so that mm-hmm. you actually now have more students out there than you ever had at the you know Ivy League type school. Well, Prager U is like an online educational forum. It's not a, a university in the traditional sense. But I've had six Prager U videos and they have reached over 70 million people. And so you think wow. about it in a classroom a professor teaching four classes a year, anywhere between 35 to 70, maybe 100 students per class, you're not going to be able to reach millions of people. And so I I sort of coined the expression that the world is my classroom. Nice. I love it. Love it. So can I just... Uh, Wait, I, I just oh, have one more really quick question. <laughs> yeah, and you then, are, already yeah, said you're one more question. I know, <laughs> I know. But I really want to ask this because this is a question people ask me mm-hmm. when I'm out and about, sure. you know, speaking, meeting people. They always say, what are you reading right now? Oh, right. Yeah, good. And we're, we, we've recorded some podcasts mm-hmm. about books and the importance and significance of those and which books. So can I ask you... And if, if you want to decline to answer, that's okay, too. But what are you reading right now? Well, uh, what I'm reading and thinking that other people need to read is my new book that was released on August 1st. Uh, it was written to be understood by the American people who are grappling to understand critical race theory and the debate around diversity, equity, and inclusion. 
The title of this book is Black Eye for America, How Critical Race Theory is Burning Down the House. There's so many people that don't understand critical race theory, and I would argue that it is the civil rights issue of our time. And so in this book, we describe the theory and how it operates, where it came from, and how it has permeated American schools and workplaces. We talk about um, how it runs contrary to American values, civil rights laws, and the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution. And we have two chapters that have advice on how you can fight back against it. And so I think that this book, which uh, was released on August 1st, is something everyone should read. Well, and so that was a really good segue into my two questions that I was going to ask, which you've already answered the first one, which is, you know, we had just heard today that this book had been released this month. And so we are really excited about this new book. Both Andrew and I have committed publicly, and we're doing it again, that we are going to read this book. It will be in my Amazon cart by the end of the hour. Exactly. And it's called Black Eye for America, How Critical Race Theory is Burning Down the House. And on the cover, Dr. Swain, you have an American flag that is burning So I'm going to segue now into my second question, and I'm basically borrowing an idea from Candace Owen. Maybe it's plagiarism. Maybe it's just imitation. But I love this idea, what she said. You have two minutes. Could you share in two minutes something really important to our Institute for Excellence in Writing parents and teachers who are wanting the best for their children? What would you say to them? Well, first of all, Maybe they've already noticed that the world that children are growing up in is just vastly different from anything we experienced in so many ways, and that nothing can be taken for granted. You cannot assume anything about your child because you raised them in church and you model good, you know, Judeo-Christian values and principles. You cannot assume that that is something that the society around your family or your child will reinforce. So I think it's important, more important than ever, for parents to be actively involved in their children's lives when it comes to monitoring the social media. When we were growing up, there was no social media, uh, but children are growing up with it. They need to know uh, which websites they're on, They need to really think strongly about whether or not their child needs a phone, a smartphone. And if they do uh, give them a phone or something like that, uh, have they blocked it in such a way that it can't access websites where they will be exposed to pornography? They also need time to look at the books that their children are being assigned to read in school look at the lesson plans, and realize that uh, your child is being targeted by people with nefarious motives and goals, and that it's not just your child and your family, but America and our way of life. All of it is at stake. All of it is up for grabs. And what you and your family 
choose to do will make a tremendous difference. And if enough people stand up, empower themselves with knowledge, begin to take action, we can create a ripple effect that will impact our nation and ultimately the rest of the world. Amen. Oh, Preach it, sister. I love it. I love it. <laughs> Carol, you have blessed us tremendously by taking the time to do this, and uh, I will keep you in my prayers. I believe your work is very, very important. I will read your book as soon as I can, and if there's anything that we can do uh, to serve you and your uh, your comrades in arms, your work in any way, please do let us know. And I, uh, I will hold a secret wish in my heart that someday we can actually meet in person and have lunch or coffee together. I don't know when or where that could happen, but if, uh, if it's meant to be, perhaps it will. certainly um, hope uh, it does happen, and you know how to reach me. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you, Dr. Swain. Just one last comment to our listeners. Her website, which I love, her website, it's B, like, B-E, BeThePeopleNews.com, BeThePeopleNews.com. And if you go there, you can find her book, all sorts of information about Dr. Swain, and and just know that you have now many, many more fans, Dr. Swain, and we're so grateful for allowing uh, us to interview you on this meek and humble podcast of ours. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Bye. God bless you. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, you can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher, or just visit us each week at IEW.com podcast. Until then, on behalf of Andrew Pudua and the team at IEW, I thank you for allowing us to partner with you on your journey toward better listening, speaking, reading, writing, and thinking.